He's a former police officer. He worked undercover with some of the most dangerous motorcycle gangs, other organized crime groups that you can imagine. He gravitated towards investigating child pornography and both took a tragic toll on him. How he used the experience in digital forensics to help save others. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. We are thrilled to partner with Shatterproof at FHE, the world-renowned treatment program for first responders. Because at times, helpers need help. Exclusive treatment services for first responders who may suffer from exposure to trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420. 833-776-1420. That's 833-776-1420. Or online at fhehealth.com. That's fhehealth.com health.com under programs you'll find details about shatterproof calling us from seattle washington area we have brett shavers on the phone brett is a former police officer he's an author of six books a forensic consultant he worked undercover in extremely dangerous situations with organized crime groups in particular motorcycle gangs then transitioned to something that we thought would be safer investigating child pornography and digital forensics brett thanks so much for being a guest on the show very much appreciated it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And by the way, thank you for your service. That's appreciated as well. Are <laughs> you bet? You did 15 years in law enforcement, correct? Yes, uh, just just shy of 15 years, but basically 15 years. And whereabouts did you serve? I was in. Uh, I worked for the Renton Police Department in Washington State, which is just adjacent to Seattle. It's a uh, kind of a suburb, I guess, of Seattle. There was a time when I thought suburbs were safe. When I was young police, I thought those guys had it easy. They didn't. They had it rough. There was less of them. They had to expose the same amount of crime because there was a lot less of them. Was that your case? It was, especially since we have some direct routes into the city you know, and out of the city. So it was, uh, the crime was about the same, really, it seemed. Many, many years ago, I began to realize working in law enforcement, there's no such thing as a safe neighborhood. Criminals travel, and they go to areas where there's more money, it's more affluent, and they target those people. But a lot of, for example, in my experience, a lot of the drug gangs and stash houses would be out in the counties, out in the suburbs. They didn't want them in a city around that environment where you can see them. Was that the case with you? It was, and I'm sure it still is. It is. It's safer that way, and it's pretty common. So you worked in, like most people, you worked in patrol, uniformed police officer for a while. You know, not, I wouldn't say for a while. I only did patrol for a few years, and that included bicycle patrol. So um, after that, I went to investigations and stayed there. <laughs> so okay. it wasn't that long in patrol. Investigations, narcotics, plain clothes, yep. undercover? Yep, it was a uh, jack of all trades when I was doing the local narc unit. That was the uh, narcotics, vice, gambling. 
And then from there, went to a state task force. And then from there, went to a federal task force. So I kind of jumped around task forces. In some ways, your career sounds like mine. I started in uniform patrol and gravitated to what we called special operations, then uh, worked at narcotics in the district level. Got uh, recruited by DEA and deputized U.S. Marshal, worked on a, a DEA task force uh, for a couple of years, then promoted to sergeant. But I, I loved uniform, but I also really loved the narcotics investigation. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the narcotics world just because the crimes that are involved with drugs runs the gamut. So that's the, uh, I really enjoyed that kind of work more than patrol. Although the crimes run the gamut, um, being involved as the investigator kind of made me uh, uh, more satisfied in the job. Before we get into your career, I, I one thing that I noticed, I worked, I'd say, about three years in plain clothes, working narcotics, the DEA task force, all that stuff. And then when I placed high on a sergeant's list, they, they shipped me back to uniform patrol. And I got to tell you, it was almost like it was a relief to just handle calls and, and be out there. I was aware that the uniform patrolman in the marked car has a 24-7 target on their back. Everybody knows who you are. So there's some degree of safety with people not knowing for sure who you are but man it was a nice a nice breath of fresh air to just go to uniform for a while that uniform is uh it, you're right i agree with you and the other upside of that is uh bicycle patrol when i did that one when i first went to bicycle uh, <laughs> in the uniform i felt completely exposed uh the you know the, the uh protection of a car is gone when you're on a bicycle riding on the sidewalk especially at night so there's depending on where you're working you know if there's that protection and security or not so yeah i, I would think that bicycle patrol would be pretty exposed same as the motorcycle cop same as the mounted cops and walking a footbeat you've got no listen to be honest there's really no protection from gunfire with a car door it goes right through there but at least you have some concealment those other operations you've none at all you're out there in the open yeah, psychologically, it feels naked when you when you have nothing around you. But you're right, bullets go through uh, doors just as easy as that, as they weren't there. But uh, psychologically, it's a big difference. So let's talk about your narcotics, your, your plainclothes career. Uh, it also included undercover work, correct? It did. There's a big difference. A lot of people get confused, thanks to Hollywood, plainclothes cops to call them undercover. I did plainclothes. I was a great surveillance cop. I was great doing investigations. I was lousy undercover. Didn't do much of it for that reason. And, and I believe it takes an acquired skill set to be very good at working undercover. Would you agree? It does. It's not just acquired, but it's also, a, I think, a natural ability, too. I think there's a combination of both. When you say un you worked undercover, was it long Deep cover? Was it just you going in for buys? I'm saying just like it's nothing. Uh, those yeah, are big know, things too. Yeah, it's um, you know, it was a potpourri of everything. There was um, a lot of those quick buy bust. You know, ordering, you know, a couple grams of and busting it. And there was some deep, long term undercover of um, you know, over a year, for some cases, and that was all at the same time. So I was doing quick buy bust for one agency while I'm working a long case for you know ICE or Homeland or. Or DEA on, on other cases, so it was um, constantly busy with different types of cases on a regular basis. How did you decide? Look, I want to do plain clothes undercover work. Did that just come to you? Did you gravitate towards that slowly, or is it thrust upon you? You know, it's, it's one of those things that um, after you see it for the first time, you, you kind of wonder, right, you know, that might be kind of neat to do. So that's how it kind of happened. It wasn't like I grew up wanting to be an undercover officer. It was a uh, 
you'll see other people do it and watching the cases, you know, the real life cases, not the uh, lethal weapon movie Hollywood things and say, you know, that actually looks like something I'm interested in. And that's how it kind of started. So how does one go about saying, hey, you, you don't raise your hand in the squad room one day and say, I want to be an undercover guy. Well, I did. That's uh, that's how I started, tried to start, was uh, raising my hand. But, you know, my agency was, it's about 125 commissioned, you know, plus non-commissioned officers on top of that. And there's, there's only two spots, really. So it's, I mean, as you know, in smaller agencies, uh, it's it's a limit, limited spots wherever you wanted to go. And timing is everything. So you're, what positions you have. So uh, I was lucky. I didn't get it the first time. I had to wait a couple of years, try again. And so eventually I uh, was accepted, you know, after an interview and process and doing a little skit really on how to buy, on buying drugs from a uniformed interviewer, which I never bought drugs before in my life. So trying to uh, improvise that. Um, it's always a, it's a, it's a learning experience. So that's kind of how I got in was um, trying a few times and eventually getting uh, the spot. And then can't wait to hear more about your undercover career. This is law enforcement Today's show. We're talking with Brett Shavers. Brett is a former police officer. He is a digital forensics expert and author, a consultant, and so much more. When we return, we're going to talk about working undercover with criminal motorcycle gangs and more. This is law enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. The Officer Down Memorial Podcast tells the real stories of the men and women we've lost in the line of duty. It is one of the darkest days in Itasca County's history. From the officers who were there. He's probably maybe one of the best investigators and a a natural born one. And family and friends who were left behind. You try and get distance from people's tragedies, but the death of Beefy, it just shot home to all of us how permanent murder is. You can subscribe to the Officer Don Memorial Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Return conversation with Brett Shavers on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Brett is a former police officer from Renton, Washington, outside of Seattle. He's a forensic consultant. He's written six books, industry-specific books. He's worked undercover and transitioned into investigating child pornography and digital forensics and what a ball of wax that is. We'll talk about that later. I want to direct the conversation to your undercover career. I get the uniform patrol part. I get all the things we talked about. And I also understand some of the undercover because I was lousy at the undercover part. I tried everything in the world. And I jokingly say I could be 85 years old in the old folks home and people go, shh, there's 5-0 when I go stumbling by. I'll always look like a cop and I'm okay with that. A lot of the undercover people did not have that look about them. Yeah, you know, I think it goes beyond the look. I think it's the demeanor. Uh, if you can look like a cop, but if your demeanor is not that as a cop, um, I think you, anyone can really do it if you want to. It's kind of like, you know, when you um, when patrol officers are driving unmarked cars, they always back into parking places. You know, you walk through a parking lot and you say, yeah, that must be a cop because uh, he's backed into a parking spot. Well, the undercover officers, you'll never see an undercover officer do that in their personal car or, or their undercover cars because they know that's one of the things that the demeanor of a cop. So not being able to do it, you know, you have to be uh, obviously brave, you know, and unaware that, of the danger. Uh, I mean, my first my first undercover buy was without training, and I was kind of pressured to do it and it ended up being a meth buy from a meth addict. 
and it was one of the most dangerous things I've ever, I thought the job really was uh, a terrible job to do because of the danger. And uh, that was mostly because I was untrained and uh, almost unsupervised in doing it. It just took a while for me to learn how to actually do the job right. I had someone on the show who's who worked for years undercover for ATF. And one of the things that he said, uh, lose his name, is that your backup squad is basically there to avenge your death because if things go bad, you don't have enough time to get there and save the person. And we lost officers in Baltimore working undercover uh, that were, were shot and killed and was caught on tape. Uh, and it's a horrific thing. It is extremely dangerous. I mean, extremely dangerous. Where there's drugs and drug dealers, there's guns. And where there's guns, there's usually what we call muscle or hit men. And things can go south very quickly. Yeah, there's no such thing as a rescue team. I mean, it's a it's a cleanup team, like you said. Uh, it's the only thing that's going to save you is your is your mouth and your brain. Um, but those two things are working in conjunction with each other. Um, that that's what will save you, no matter the situation, really. It, uh, even if you're exposed, your your mouth and your brain is what's going to get you out of there. It's not going to be your your backup gun or you know your uh, ankle holster gun. None of those things are really going to be your your first choice. It's talking your way out of it. So um, yeah, that's that's the life of an undercover officer in any situation is uh, you're you're on your own, no matter how close your rescue team is, because it's not really a rescue team. We were always taught in uniform patrol, no matter what you did, your your most powerful weapon is your mind. You have to learn how to use it. You have to learn how to talk your way out of situations and, and talk people down. We were doing de-escalating just like you before it was a thing. Uh, we were doing community policing before it was a thing. That's all we knew. So when you talk about working undercover, Brett, it w- was there a situation, at least one or two, where you thought, oh, my goodness, I might die. This is going to get bad really quick. Yeah, probably more than one. <laughs> there's um, there's uh, several. There's, I mean, I guess the the... The one that stands out in my mind was I was uh, patted down impromptly. I mean, it was just, um, you know, meeting somebody. It was a Mexican organized crime you know, organization, and I was patted down as soon as I walked into the door, and they missed the body wire, and they missed my, my firearm that I carried because it was kind of a, 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 um, a loose pat down, I guess. But at the same time, there was a gun in my gut. So it was like a gun in the gut and a pat down. And what was going through my mind was, uh, this is bad. <laughs> this is this is not good because I got two things there I don't want them to find. And unfortunately, they missed both of them. And it was over in less than maybe five seconds. So, But those five seconds felt like a long time. I bet so that's, they did. I, I'm, I'm sure they did. And uh, your mind is thinking, I'm done. They're going to find this? Well, my mind was thinking, um, how am I going to get out of it? That's It wasn't, I'm done. I've, I've never really had, I'm, I'm done. Attitude. It's more like, um, what am I going to do? That's the uh, what's the first thing. You said earlier, jokingly, half jokingly, that there are many situations you went through where it could have been really, really bad. Can you explain any more of those? Well, sure. I've had uh, locked doors behind me, and that's kind of a bad sign where you're uh, locked in a room. Uh, so that's that was a probably bad one. I've uh, bought drugs from people I've arrested before. And um, some of them were, and I didn't know that I actually was, was buying them from people I arrested. And being recognized while undercover is always a bad thing. So there's uh, quite a few of those that happened. They And they recognized you? They did. It, well, it wasn't 100%. It was one of those um, I know you kind of things and talking my way out of I, I don't think so, you know, those sort of situations. So those those were kind of common, I guess, for uh, danger. A lot of the other dangers were just dealing with um 
heavy drug addicts when I was doing street level buys because they're just unpredictable. A lot of them were armed, and it was just uh, you know by bus the arrest happening right there. So the, the the tenseness of those stressful situations, but but overall, a lot of the the cases were meeting and greeting and setting up bigger deals along the line and bigger cases and organizations and conspiracies. But it's those small ones that uh, pop up, you know, in an instant. Those were the, the scary ones. What's the one thing about working undercover, working plain clothes, in your opinion, that most Americans don't get? And it's usually courtesy of Hollywood. Well, probably the, the biggest one is when you're working undercover, you are you're investigating, which isn't really in the movies that much. So in the movies, you, you'll see undercovers maybe shoot somebody and walk away or, or do some drugs or commit some crimes, and they don't write any paper on it. <laughs> but in, in the real world... Every single meeting, if it's not recorded, it's written. And if it's recorded, it's still written. And things are reported. Uh, even on deep cover, you're reporting to somebody on what you're doing. And it's an ongoing process with the prosecutor to make sure the case you know, goes forward. I mean, you're not sleeping with informants and robbing banks with the bad guys. None of those things. Those are all Hollywood things. So it's really an investigation. So everything you see, you're trying to memorize. Everything you're doing, you're trying to do it in the furtherance of the case and investigation. And you're not trying to put yourself at such a risk of having to use drugs or, or hurt people. I mean, those are, those are crimes. So the movies are different than real life because real life, you know, actors get to do that a couple times. So I do a take a couple times over where in the undercover world, uh, you get one chance and uh, you either you pass that audition or you don't. That's, that's kind of the biggest uh, difference. One of the biggest misconceptions, I think, is courtesy of Miami Vice. Now, granted, I'm a little bit older than you. I watch these TV shows. I watch these movies. And they show cops living, working undercover, living in million-dollar loft apartments, driving high-end exotic sports cars, high-performance vehicles. And they've got this glamorous life. In reality, for me at least, it was driving old, beat-up cars with leftover food in it never knowing when you're going to get home, sweating because the AC didn't work, and you go back to someone, usually my spouse, who was not too happy with me. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're talking with Brett Shavers. We're going to talk more about working undercover and transitioning to investigating child pornography and more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you haven't done so already, Please download our app. It's 100% free. We got versions for your Android and iPhone devices, 100% free. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Be sure to get yours today. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. This is the Law Enforcement Day Show. Returning a conversation with Brett Shavers, a former police officer from the Seattle, Washington area. He is also an author of six books, industry-specific books, a forensic analyst, a consultant. He worked undercover for years and then began to transition into computer crimes, specifically child pornography, digital forensics, and that sort of thing. Before we get into the computer crimes and digital forensics and child pornography, what possessed you? I understand wanting to do 
to get into undercover work. I understand that, hey, I, I want to be that guy. I want to do better cases than the next one and, and to be the man, so to speak. There come a point where you're like, I'm tired of this. I'm done with this. I need to find something else to do in law enforcement. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's a, a bunch of those that uh, actually happen. Um, particularly, there's just one case where there's a lot of corruption involved, and that was corruption with a foreign agency that I was uh, working undercover for, and in another agency in the U.S. that was actually had some corruption, and I was almost disclosed in that as an undercover, and there was death and mayhem in that case. So that's probably the biggest thing that got me thinking uh, maybe there's another another job for me other than doing this drug stuff. And and I kind of happened upon uh, forensics, digital forensics, mostly because one of my cases involved, it was a drug trafficking case. And in that drug trafficking case, the dealer offered me, you know, a 13-year-old girl. And that kind of changed the course direction of that case from cocaine to trafficking of, uh, of minors. And the outcome of that case pretty much made me decide, yeah, this is where I think I want to go for is – you know, children, protecting children rather than going after the drug drug dealers, I think I can do better work with uh, children. And that's where the digital forensics actually came from. Well, I think maybe with the we working with children, you can save a life. And with the, the frustration, at least for me, in working narcotics is it's like whack-a-mole. You, you take one player off the street, there's no one right behind. There's actually two right behind them. That's true. Um, no matter how many you do, it's like my wife describes it as uh, catching rain with a sieve, you know, running out in the middle of the, of the street and trying to catch all the rain. It's just, you just can't, you can't do it. There's always more. With the child predators, at least for every predator that you catch and hopefully convict, that's a lot of victims that won't be victims down the line. So that's one of the big factors. And when, when you see those cases, and just as one example, um, I did one case, it was a child uh, molestation case. And he admitted in confession, you know, confessed, uh, confessed in an interview that he raped, you know, granddaughter. But the digital forensics, which means um, looking at the computers that he had for pictures, what he downloaded, and those sort of things. Well, not only was there more crimes that he did, but we identified more children that were not disclosed earlier in that same uh, neighborhood. And the conviction that he got on all the crimes was way more than just one admission of one child molestation. It was actually quite a bit of crime. So the decades that he got on that one case probably made a bigger impact on me on, well, this is going to save a lot more children by doing you know, the forensic analysis, the CI, CSI of computers, basically, and finding evidence. That really kind of made my day with that case on uh, where I wanted to go from there. And I'm, I don't want to say it's safer, but I can imagine working digital forensics, doing computer work, analyzing computers, analyzing files, everything else. It's probably, they're not shooting at you, but the problem is I, I would imagine, and from many guests I've had on the show, is when you have to look at these photos and have to really examine these photos and they're graphic and they're being, they're, they're photos of children being abused and violated, sexually violated. And I don't know how you unsee that. Yeah, you can't unsee that. Um, and, and I've never met anyone who's enjoyed that part of the work. It's the only thing that will keep you going is the outcome of doing that work. Um, the, the pain of seeing what the kids go through um, is, like I said, it's a forever scar. But it's just the only thing to focus on is on the outcome because otherwise it just it will just tear you apart. One of the big misconceptions I see a lot. And my wife, it's gotten to the point, Brett, where we, we rarely ever watch American media created dramas about police work because they're so far off base. We generally will watch BBC 
related content because they do a better job of character development. They do a little bit better job with being more realistic in the investigations. Having said that, when I look at these shows and I look back at my experience, I found it really difficult to deal with seeing children brutalized and victimized, whether it be by family members, friends, so-called loved ones. It didn't matter. And the ones who were sexually abused were were equally as horrific as the physical abuse. I, I can't differentiate between the two. Yeah, there's there's really no difference. Um, and I mean, when you have that view of, of kids, you know, and protecting kids, and and you see the you know, the acts that were committed on them, and the after effect of the kids. I mean, dealing with you know with children after the the, the fact of everything, especially after a trial. Um, it, it really affects you in the long term, and it, it gives you a different perspective than what you may see on TV, for sure. And in the TV presentation, especially the, the, the American-produced content, they'll show, for example, if you have someone who's a prostitute or sex worker or whatever terms used nowadays that is murdered, they portray the police as not caring because of the lifestyle they lived. Same with children and children of minorities that go missing or abused. All of a sudden, we don't care because they don't look like us. And that I get really angry when I see that. You know, I, I, I hear that sometimes in the news as well. And, and just based on my experience, whenever there is a, let's say there's a case of a, of a lured child, you know, someone who's been lured away from home on, by the computer, or a child has been kidnapped or taken off the street, when the first sentence is, we have a case, there's a child missing. And in my experience, everyone I've ever seen and worked with immediately jumps to the front of the you know, of this scene there and says, okay, let's get started on this. There's no question on, um, well, what kind of kid was it? Who's the parents? Uh, where were they doing? Nothing like that. It's all, it all boils down to, this is the fact of what happened, now let's get to work. So when the media portrays that kind of uh, perception that, well, it all depends on who the kid is, that sort of thing, it's... I've never seen that to be be true. It's mostly uh, this is the job we got to do. We got to get this kid back, or we got to get this crime solved, or get this criminal, that sort of thing. So it's it's uh, it's, it's different than what the reality is. Does that make you angry as well? You know, I accept it. Uh, it's angry, but anger doesn't do anything. It's the media has to do what the media has to do for clicks and advertising and, and generating emotion. So they're going to do that, and law enforcement really. All you can do is your job, and the truth eventually comes out. You know, if the, if the child is rescued or saved and, or the criminal is, is captured and convicted, you know, that's the truth there. So whatever the media says, um, that's, that's kind of on them and how they had to sleep at night. For law enforcement, you do what you have to do so you can sleep at night. Well, here's the thing. I, did, I, I, I owe no one explanations. I did everything I could to do my job the best way I could under the circumstances, and I, there's no apologies. My, my problem is not so much with the news media or Hollywood creating this content, which is fictitious. My problem is people who are well-intended, well-educated, and can think for themselves believe that garbage. Yeah, you can't. You know, I, I've come to the conclusion you, you can't convince somebody what they don't want to be convinced in. You just have to let facts play out, and people make their own decisions, and whether they're accurate or not, there's not much you can do other than saying, you know, this is the fact. Um, make your own decision. Sleep with what you, you can sleep with, really. That's what it comes down to. One of my complaints with these CSI shows, for example, you're examining a photo of some child pornography, and they can zoom and get crystal clear images of people and do facial recognition and have results within five seconds of who that person was. 
How close or inaccurate is that? I'd say that half of what the show's display doesn't work, right? And the other half, they don't even have a don't even have a clue of how much we can actually do because we can actually do a lot more than what they say in some aspects, and not anything near what they say in other aspects. Hold that thought. We're going to return that conversation in just a few moments. We are talking with Brett Shavers, former police officer, author of six books, forensic analyst, consultant. Worked undercover for years, then transitioned to computer crimes, specifically against children. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Have I got a deal for you? No, I'm not trying to sell you a bridge or swampland. Enter contests for your chance to win great prizes by subscribing to the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again? Or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O, Podopolo. Return conversation with Brett Shavers on the Law Enforcement Day Show. Brett is a former police officer, 15 years in the Seattle, Washington suburbs. He's an author of six books, industry-specific books, a forensic analyst, consultant. He worked undercover for years, transitioned towards computer crimes against children. Brett, one of the things that I find, the right word is not fascinating, but I guess... I'm amazed and fearful at the same time is the amount of ways that predators can target, find, and lure children just using online like gaming systems. Yes, and that's just a start. Um, when any any child with unfettered internet access is open to the world, the entire world it has direct access to that child. And that's not a good thing if it's unfettered and unsupervised. And that's the world that we're living in. So, yeah, that, that is scary. And every kid I know nowadays has a smartphone with full web access. They've got multiple apps on it. They've got a gaming system or two. They've got a computer at the house. And they they seem to have parents that, I'm old school. There's no locks on your doors, your bedroom doors, when you're the kids. And I'll come in your room anytime I want. That's the way we did things. That's the way I was raised. Nowadays, parents seem to be, many parents seem to be afraid of invading the child's privacy. Yes, um, I'm with you. I raised my kids that way as well, um, and they both turned out well, so I'm not mad to do that. But there are parents that really allow their kids a lot of freedom, and I understand you know, freedom to make mistakes, but there's a line of freedom to make mistakes and the freedom where they're going to be victimized. So that's, that's a tough line to uh, draw with a lot of parents, but for the parents who are thinking they're too strict, they're probably not too strict. That's probably better to be safe than sorry well i can tell you my daughters they're in their 30s now they would say i was the uber strict guy and when they would be dating brett i would say to them you have a conversation with this guy if he ever hurts you ever abuses you i'll fly up there i'll take care of business and they all told them uh, look i'm okay being who i am i'm not a mean guy what's the one thing that you you would encourage parents to say listen 
There is a threat to your children's safety. It involves the internet. It involves these handheld devices. It involves gaming systems. What's the one thing you tell parents they should start doing immediately? The one thing is, just like you said, is uh, be open, where if the parents, especially if the parents are paying the bill and they're responsible for their child, you know, from teenager on down, they should have access, I mean, open access to, let me see your device. Let me see who you're communicating with. Let me see, let me just see. And not in a, in a way of, I demand to see it and I want to get you in trouble, but in a way of, I just want to make sure no one is trying to scam you or lure you away or groom you. That's all I want to do is make sure you're not being victimized. And I think if that's an open conversation with your child, it should be hopefully a cooperative, uh, please help me not be victimized by a, a cooperative effort with the parents and the children. And we hear s- stories all the time about kids who are blackmailed with nude photos, all sorts of things, and they're, they're convinced, they're pressured to do things they don't want to do, and they wind up being hurt physically or killed. Those stories exist. One of the things that we don't talk about quite often is young children taking nude photos, sending them to that person online as a predator, and then being cyberbullied. And then some of them wind up taking their own lives because they just can't deal with that kind of pressure. Look, when I was 12, 11, 10, we didn't have this kind of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. And, you know, and this fits the, what I'm going to say for parent advice, I guess, is I raised our kids, my wife as well, that if they ever did something wrong, they made a mistake or they intentionally screwed up something that they knew they shouldn't have did, come forth and just say what it is. And we will deal with it from there. And it's the same thing when a child is being victimized somehow, whether it be groomed or whatever they posted online, for example. As long as you're open as a parent to come up to the kid to come up and say, I did this, I think I did a mistake, and the parent not clamp down and criticize really harshly, but really appreciate that. Um, and I, was, I told my kids this, thank you for telling me that. Now let's try to fix that. Let's try to remedy what happened. That is the solution. Uh, it's not trying to punish the kids for something that they did because their brains aren't fully formed and they get tricked by others. So I think if we can raise and teach the, our kids uh, to come forth and, you know, confess, I made a mistake, please help me. That's probably the best uh, solution. When I was a kid, we were told to look out for you know, the guy in the car. Hey, I got some candy or help me find my kitten or whatever it might be. That was often a danger sign. What do people need to look out for now? Well, now it's just, um, it's very scary because the grooming process doesn't start out right off the bat with, um, hey, I want, I want you to take pictures of yourself. It's it's a long process. And by the time the child finds out that they were you know, groomed or victimized, they were, have already been victimized. So I think the, what to look out for is that teaching the kids that once you realize that has happened, that is when you have to ask for help. It doesn't mean that you have to try to fix it yourself or try to remedy it yourself because you can't. You, you need the adults, you know, the parents, and maybe law enforcement to, to actually remedy it. So as long as the kids know... Um, when this happens and you realize it, that's the day that you got to come forward for help. One of the things I get, and I'm I'm an older guy. I tell people I'm in a geezer age now, and I'm totally okay with being the old, boring guy that I am. But on Messenger, on the different social media platforms, I can tell almost immediately when someone is a bot and they're trying to sell me something or scamming. It always starts with, hello, and a second one is, how are you doing? So I know what it is because I've been through this. Are, are, are people recruiting children the same way or a similar way? You know, I would imagine there's some, but, you know, kids are smart. They, they know those things, too. 
but you, you have to look at the predators because they have online. You know, one person that with one computer can access dozens or hundreds of kids in a day. So it's not candy in the van with one kid as they walk by the street. It's hundreds that they can access without a bot. They can simply type in some chats, send some pictures, and they're accessing everybody. So it's um, it's much easier than a bot, really. Before we get into what you're doing today, did you find that kind of work damaging to your psyche? It, it is. It makes you look at people a different way, and um, it makes you look at children a different way. It is being more vulnerable than you could ever think that they were, and it makes you look at people as uh, how can someone do such hor- horrific things to children. So that's that's the psyche uh, damage, I guess, I, I see on both sides. Yeah, and I, I didn't go through what you do, but I'm very cynical at times, very jaded. My wife knows the drill. We go out to eat where I need to sit, everything else. And I'm the guy who visually frisks everybody on the airplane <laughs> because, oh, if this guy breaks bad, I got to do this. We're talking to Brett Shavers. Now, Brett, you've got six books. You're you're actively involved in working in digital forensics after you left law enforcement. Where do people find out more information about your books and what you do? Uh, the first best place is my personal blog at brettshavers.com. And I pretty much just talk about digital forensics and investigations. And I have a link to a podcast that I do. I just started on Undercover true crime, basically some stories in more detail of what I've talked about. And uh, everything's pretty much there. My links to social media, everything that I'm doing and where I'm speaking at and that sort of thing. So that'd be uh, brettshavers.com, including a new book that I'm working on, on some corruption, assassinations involved with digital forensics. There's some neat things all going on with there. I did not know about your podcast. Tell us the name of the podcast. What's well, underworldtruecrime.com. And it, I just started it just because I keep getting asked to give stories of what I've gone through and uh, and give some uh, true crime case studies as well. So it's uh, underworldtruecrime.com and the links are in there. And, and so far, I've just given some uh, details on some undercover stuff that I've done. And you're also, you do uh, forensic analyst work and you're consultant. So can people reach out to you, law enforcement agencies or uh, family groups? Mostly uh, law firms. I do uh, private consulting now. And so for law enforcement, I was doing some pro bono work, but you know, law enforcement has caught up a lot more now than uh, they were when I was doing it in law enforcement. So they're, they're pretty much good to go, hopefully, for forensics. But mostly it's just law firms uh, reaching out for, you know, mostly civil incidents, you know, stolen uh, client list and stolen software problems, that sort of thing. Give us your website address one more time. It's at brettshapers.com, B-R-E-T-T. S-H-A-V-E-R-S.com. And Brett, I want to thank you, number one, for your service, for all you did for our communities, our country, and for those families. And thank you for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated. It's my pleasure, totally. If you want to be a guest on the show, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, just contact, send an email to me, j at lawenforcementtoday.com. Message via Facebook. We're all over this thing called the World Wide Web, Instagram, and all that stuff, too. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show, broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.